Leopold Koretz, William Thompson, Cassie L. Chadwick, Victor Lustig, Charles Dawson. Who are these guys and gals? Well, before we get all distracted while listening to the answers, check your money and your portfolios and make sure they're secure. This is Radio Eyes History Hour, and I'm your host, Joseph Bolt. So glad to be with you for this hour, and before we begin today's show, I just want to remind you that Radio Eye is listener-driven, and we welcome any of your comments or suggestions about programming. So if you have any thoughts or interests in the type of history that you want to hear, uh, call in or write in, let us know, and um, I'll try to develop a show around your your idea. Uh, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities and make it difficult to read printed material. Sources for today's show will be cited along the way. So, let's get started. In 1849, William Thompson was arrested in New York City for a slew of successful scams during which he duped unassuming passers-by on the street into lending him their valuables before vanishing with them. Thompson, consequently known among the local authorities as the Confidence Man, which was eventually shortened to the term Con Man. But, Thompson was hardly alone in his clever gifts, or grifts. According to historian Karen Haltunen, approximately 10% of all criminals in New York City in the 1860s were con artists. 10%. Nearly all confidence men or scam artists are charming and smooth talking. And on the website bustle.com, in an article entitled Eight Wild Facts About Con Artists to Protect Yourself, written by Stephanie Topacio Long, dated January of 2016. Stephanie outlines characteristics of con artists from a book written by Maria Konnikova, the book entitled The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. Well, Konnikova says first that con artists are not obvious villains. That in one piece of research she discovered, nearly 160 cases of company fraud it was found that 40% of those 600 cases had been considered highly respected by their co-workers. Secondly, Konnikova states that con artists take advantage of the human inclination to trust, making them vulnerable to those who wish to take advantage of them. Next, con artists are masters at reading people. Ferdinand Waldo de Mara, one of the more infamous of con men, was a master at this. 
Konnikova says that the story of how Damara, even after he was known as a con artist, scoped out the man who wished to write Damara's biography. So Damara dug into the writer's background and even scheduled appointments with him that he would not attend so that he could stay hidden from this man and observe the man's behavior. And over time, Damara used the knowledge to gain the biographer's trust and convince him that he was reformed. And then still, con the biographer out of his money. Well, let's take a look at some of these men and women who were so successful at conning the pants off of us. First of all, Charles, an Italian immigrant who first came to the U.S. in 1903 when he was 21 years of age. And like most immigrants who came to America, Charles was looking for economic opportunity. He married a woman named Rose who stayed by his side through thick and thin. He worked all kinds of jobs to make ends meet until he secured a job at Bank Zorasi, which served mostly Italian immigrants in Montreal, Canada. But, when the bank went bankrupt, Charles found himself out of a job. Well, as a result, he found himself dabbling in check forgery and illegal smuggling, which landed him in prison. Well, after his release, Charles was struck with another inspiration. Thanks to a letter from a business correspondent in Spain, the ambitious hustler was introduced to the international postal coupon system. Charles began to exploit the system by buying massive quantities of postal coupons from countries with weak economies and redeeming them in countries with stronger ones. He operated this scheme under his invented Securities Exchange Company. Charles trained sales agents to pitch to potential investors that their money would be doubled plus interest back within 45 days. Charles' scheme grew as investors eagerly dumped, dumped money into his business. At one point, it was said that the scheme was bringing in a cool $1 million a week from investors. Desk drawers, file cabinets, closet space, and virtually any extra storage areas were filled with investors' hard-earned cash. He took the payments from sales agents and investors directly, and instead of using them to ship the stamp coupons, he simply pocketed them himself. Then he gave portions of the money to pay off previous investors, creating an endless cycle of non-profitable investments. He secured over 40,000 investors, making him a millionaire in less than six months. 
In a July 1920 Boston Post article, it was estimated that Charles's net worth was around $8.5 million. By that point, he owned a 12-bedroom mansion, multiple cars, had a house staff, and even a golden cane. Charles eventually moved himself and his business to Florida, where he was pursued where he pursued rather newer schemes. His success invited scrutiny from the feds, and in the end, it was Charles's publicist, William McMasters, who revealed his fraudulent scheme and reported him to authorities. After the authorities caught up with him in Florida, he fled to Texas, where he was apprehended. The con man served three and a half years in federal prison. After he was paroled in 1925, he was sentenced to nine years in a state prison on additional fraud charges. Well, this did little to arouse any remorse in Charles, since he later described his scam as, quote, the best show ever staged since the landing of the pilgrims, end quote, and he subsequently attempted to escape from prison on several occasions. Charles was released from prison in 1934, and upon his release, his wife divorced him. At that point, he was deported back to Italy. At age 52, he had to start all over again. He eventually became an English translator while in Rome. Benito Mussolini offered him a position with Italy's new airline, and he served as the Rio de Janeiro branch manager from 1939 to 42. Charles discovered that several airline officials were using the carrier to smuggle currency, and he wanted his share. When the smugglers laughed at him, he tipped off Brazilian authorities, which led to the arrest of three top airline officials. World War II brought about the airline's failure, and Charles was once again out of a job. Poor Charles. Well, Charles uh, remained in Rio de Janeiro and tried to run a Rio Lodge, which eventually failed. He then found himself either collecting Brazilian unemployment insurance or giving English lessons, a far cry from the millionaire he had become just a decade earlier. Charles died at the age of 67 while in a charity hospital in 1949 with just $75 to his name. The Boston Globe reported that the last picture taken of Charles was in the hospital, which showed him with a big smile on his face. Oh, by the way, it occurs to me that 
you may be interested in Charles's last name? Well, when I tell you, you're going to think I'm scamming you. But here goes. Honest truth, Charles's last name, Ponzi. Yes, Charles, the source and originator of the Ponzi scheme. There's never a lack of both male and female shysters and swindlers in history. So let's move on from Charles and read more. The following is from a book entitled Greed in the Gilded Age, written by William Elliot Hazelgrove, published by Roman and Littlefield, with a copyright date of 2022. Theodore Roosevelt held up his right hand and put his left on the Bible. President McKinley was dead from an assassin's bullet, and this was the day Roosevelt was to become president, the youngest president ever at 41. And in the perfect sunny weather of Washington, D.C., few were aware that halfway across the country in Cleveland, Ohio, another swearing-in was occurring. People were being implored to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It was not an auspicious beginning to the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt to have at the same moment the beginning of the trial of the century. In the newspapers of the day, Roosevelt's inauguration was actually given less play than the trial of Cassie Chadwick for swindling bankers out of millions of dollars. It was a circus. The flash cameras blinded steel baron Andrew Carnegie as he arrived. They were much like the smelting pots in his steel mills. It was the crime of the century, and now they were calling this the trial, the trial of the century. It was all madness to him. The policemen were clearing the hallway for the old Scotsman. He was royalty as far as America was concerned. He had come to America in 1867 with nothing and started a steel industry that left him with $200 million the equivalent of over one billion today. People didn't bow, but they stared open-mouthed as this man who absurdly resembled a squatter and was feistier than Santa Claus. Reporters yelled questions, and Carnegie stared ahead stone-faced as the helmeted police pushed away the journalist and headed for the courtroom. The trial was due to start at 9.20 a.m., and ten minutes before that, Cassie Chadwick came into the courtroom in the custody of two bailiffs. The courtroom leaned forward collectively as the door to the courtroom opened, 
and a woman dressed in fashionably dark Edwardian dress was led in by a matron. The reporters on both sides of the steel tycoon began scribbling, describing the woman who claimed to be his illegitimate daughter. Brown hair pulled back, a full, wide, pleasant face with chestnut eyes, an ample figure, a dimpled smile. She looked unperturbed, as if going to a tea in the Hamptons. The press reported that she was calm and self-possessed. She wore a black shirt, white silk waist, over which she wore a black velvet coat. She wore a wide black hat, took a seat at the long table in the center of the courtroom immediately behind her leading counsel, J.P. Dawley, and resting her chin on her right hand, remained a closely interested spectator. White-haired Judge Taylor took the seat and pronounced, The Case of Mrs. Cassie L. Chadwick. We are ready, Your Honor, said District Attorney Sullivan. We are ready, announced Cassie Chadwick's lead attorney, J.P. Dolly. Dolly then began the examination of the jury, hooking one thumb into his vest pocket just under his silver pocket watch chain. He had just begun questioning the third juror, when the door opened and Andrew Carnegie entered, followed by Mrs. S.T. Everett, whose home he had been staying in. Carnegie walked into the large, open, dark-paneled courtroom and was shown to the front row of the gallery. People gasped. He was so small. Andrew Carnegie, the titan of steel and finance, was just five foot three. He had a Lilliputian quality accented by his small feet and hands and his finely trimmed white beard that gave him the air of a gnome. But he was a very rich and powerful gnome and the potassium nitrate burned on the flash cameras and smoked the room. Carnegie nodded to the judge, as one might acknowledge an employee. Then, Mr. Carnegie gave one quick glance at the woman sitting by the table and walked quietly past her to a seat on the east side of the courtroom. He settled down and nodded again to the judge, who nodded to the bailiff. He looked back at Cassie Chadwick. Andrew just wanted to see who she was. This woman had claimed she was his daughter, and then proceeded to borrow millions of dollars based on this fabrication. It was truly amazing. 
It wasn't Andrew Carnegie's fault that he had millions and many had nothing. It was the natural evolution of the economy and society, and it was natural law that men possessed of this peculiar talent for affairs, under the free play of economic forces, must of necessity soon be in receipt of more revenue than can be judiciously expended upon themselves. And that was why he had to see this woman. She had done something that very talented men had failed to do. She had accrued enormous wealth through a brilliant con that, while he disapproved of it, Carnegie understood. It required hubris and forethought and an outlandish personality for a woman to take millions of dollars from bankers when women were second-class citizens at best and didn't even have the vote. No, this Cassie Chadwick or Elizabeth Bigley or whatever her name was, she had discovered the same secret that he himself had stumbled upon, and she had lived a life of opulence that rivaled his own. The press noticed Carnegie's fascination with Cassie in the courtroom. Mr. Carnegie seemed to be highly interested in Mrs. Chadwick, and as he sat where he could study her closely without being himself observed, ob observed, he took advantage of his opportunity to the fullest and subjected her from time to time to close scrutiny. It was an age fascinated with new wealth, and men like Carnegie were revered as gods. This is an age of great fortunes, the New York Times gushed in 1882. Never before in the history of the Republic have there been so many men who are so very rich. There have been no women millionaires. But it would make some sense if a rich woman was none other than the illegitimate daughter of a great man. And they all wanted to know if it was true, did Andrew Carnegie have an illegitimate daughter? Absurd. Did he sign a promissory note for seven million? Well, he had not signed a promissory note for 30 years. Was Cassie Chadwick going to inherit $400 million upon his death? Well, let's pick up more details of Cassie Chadwick's situation from the article historyofyesterday.com entitled How the Audacious Mrs. Chadwick Ruined a Bank. It was written by Darla in January of 2021. Cassie L. Chadwick wasn't even born as Cassie. In fact, her real name was Elizabeth Begley. She was born in Eastwood, Ontario, Canada, 
on the 10th of October, 1857. And Elizabeth Bigley, a.k.a. Cassie L. Chadwick, was one of the most notorious con artists in American history. Her cunning caused the eventual downfall of the Citizens National Bank of Oberlin. She fleeced several banks of what could, maybe then, back then, been between 21 and $40 million of today's money. As a child, Cassie was reportedly quiet. Her parents had a farm in Eastwood, where she lived with her four siblings. Immersed in her own thoughts, she hardly made friends. And as a young girl, she displayed intelligence that would later on prove valuable. She understood human nature better than those around her. Her first fraudulent act was done at the age of 14. She forged a letter from an unknown uncle in England. The letter stated that he, the fictitious uncle, was bequeathing her a small amount of cash as her inheritance. This was, of course, untrue. There was no uncle and no cash. But the forged letter looked real enough, and so the bank issued real checks to the bank account she now had. She lived like an heiress until the note came due, and as months went on, and she was unable to pay, she was caught. Maybe they thought she was too young, or maybe they thought her slightly insane. In any case, she was not charged in court. They let her go with a stern warning and reminded her that she should never attempt the scam again. Well, after several years, Cassie moved to the United States to follow her sister Alice. Alice had already married a man named Bill York, who was based in Cleveland, Ohio. In the beginning, she lived with her sister, and in her sister's house, she started itemizing their furniture. She brought the itemized list to the bank and used it as collateral for a bank loan. Well, as soon as Bill got wind of what she did, he kicked her out of the house. Now on her own, she decided to reinvent herself. It was then that she claimed to be a clairvoyant named Madame Lydia DeVere. During this time, she would meet Dr. Wallace Springsteen. She and the doctor married on November 21, 1882, and the wedding pictures would make the Plain Deal newspaper. Through the images and information in the newspaper, those who knew Cassie recognized her. Various merchants and people to whom she owed money tracked her down. And this even included her sister, Alice York. Through this, Dr. Wallace Springsteen uncovered her shady past. Although he settled her debts, he also divorced her. He left after a mere 12 days into their marriage. 
After her marriage to Dr. Springsteen, she decided to rename herself again. She decided on Madame Marie LaRose. Sticking to her story as a clairvoyant, she would meet her next two husbands this way. One was a country farmer named John R. Scott, with whom she stayed married to for four years. After divorcing the farmer, she married the businessman C.L. Hoover. He is presumably the father of her only son, Emil Hoover. After Mr. Hoover's death in 1888, she moved to Toledo as Lydia DeVere. She forged promissory notes worth several thousand dollars and asked a client named Joseph Lamb to cash it for her. Mr. Lamb had an excellent reputation. The banks cashed him her fraudulent checks. However, the banks caught on and they were both arrested. In 1889, Elizabeth Bigley was sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. Joseph Lamb was acquitted after having been found an unwitting accomplice. After serving several years in jail, she wrote a letter to Governor William McKinley to plead her case. He pardoned her in 1893, thinking... She had turned over a new leaf. Well, that was not the case. Upon her release from jail, she returned to Cleveland as Mrs. Cassie Hoover. She opened a brothel, and it was here that she met her next husband, Dr. Leroy Chadwick. Well, they married in 1897. Dr. Chadwick was wealthy and lived along Cleveland's Euclid Avenue, then also known as Millionaire's Row. As Dr. Chadwick's wife, she had a taste of wealth. Her neighbors along Millionaire's Row were affluent, and she tried very hard to fit in. She coveted more than what she already had. To do this, she pretended to be Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter. The story was that she met an acquaintance of her husband, a banker named Dylan, in the lobby of Holland House. She asked Dylan to accompany her to the mansion of Andrew Carnegie on Fifth Avenue. Once they arrived in Carnegie's mansion, she went inside and spoke to one of his housekeepers. She managed to extend this conversation to half an hour. Well, after Cassie went out of the mansion, she pretended to have spoken to Mr. Carnegie himself. She presented a fake promissory note worth millions signed by Mr. Carnegie. But why would... Andrew Carnegie, arguably one of the richest men in America, give her a promissory note. 
She was his illegitimate daughter, she had claimed. It was a secret, and she pressured Dylan into maintaining this secrecy. In fact, she said that she was set to inherit a whopping $400 million after Carnegie died. Except this was, of course, not true. Dylan, out of politeness, never bothered to verify the claim with Mr. Carnegie himself. He wanted to believe Cassie L. Chadwick, and so checks were issued from various banks based on this forged promissory note that Mr. Chadwick, Mrs. Chadwick, had fabricated. Cassie L. Chadwick deftly moved around money from one bank to the other, giving the impression of paying it back. She kept on borrowing based on these forged promissory notes, and no one asked questions. This was until a man called Herbert B. Newton came along. Herbert B. Newton, a Massachusetts banker, issued Cassie L. Chadwick a $190,000 loan in late 1904. When her loan was due and she couldn't pay, Newton realized that something was terribly wrong. He uncovered the truth. The securities in her name were worthless. She had used up all the money that she had borrowed to fund a lavish lifestyle that she could not afford, and she was never going to pay it back. These events led to the doom of Citizens National Bank of Oberlin. The Bank of Oberlin had loaned Cassie L. Chadwick $800,000 and knew she would never be able to pay it back. Their other clients had come to the same conclusion and withdrew their money. This caused the bank run that ultimately led to bankruptcy. There was truly nothing left anymore. Mrs. Chadwick had effectively ruined the bank. At her trial, with Andrew Carnegie in attendance. Cassie was convicted on seven counts of conspiracy against the government and conspiracy to wreck the Citizens National Bank of Oberlin. Some sources say that she was sentenced to about 10 years. Other sources say 14 years and fined $70,000. She brought trunks of finery to prison, animal skin rugs and clothes, which the warden let her keep. In January of 1906, she began her prison term. According to some newspaper accounts, Cassie was already in declining health during her trial. The article stated that, quote, she fretted incessantly, over her confinement until it became almost impossible for her to sleep. At times, she was so peevish, the patience of the prison officials 
was sorely tried. End quote. While her son, Emile, was visiting her in prison, she suddenly collapsed and was confined to the prison hospital. She remained there until she died on her birthday, October 10, 1907, less than two years into her prison term. Cassie Chadwick, or Elizabeth Bigley, whichever you prefer, was 48 years of age. Cassie was buried in Eastwood, Ontario, the town of her birth, and supposedly had instructed her son to go to her hiding place where he would find the money to buy her a tombstone. Sources for the last article came from womeninhistoryohio.com Cassie L. Chadwick, written in January 2013 with no author cited, and from the website allthatsinteresting.com from an article entitled Nine of History's Most Infamous Con Artists and the Scams They Got Away With, written by Natasha Ishak in December of 2020. The following article comes from smithsonian.com entitled The Man Who Sold the Eiffel Tower Twice, written by Jeff Mesh on March 9, 2016. The air was as crisp as a $100 bill on April 27, 1936. A southwesterly breeze filled the bright white sails of the pleasure boats sailing across the San Francisco Bay. Through the cabin window of a ferry boat, a man studied the horizon. His tired eyes were hooded, his dark hair swept backwards, his hands and feet locked in iron chains. Behind a curtain of gray mist, he caught his first dreadful glimpse of Alcatraz Island. Count Victor Lustig, 46 years old at the time, was America's most dangerous con man. In a lengthy criminal career, his sleight-of-hand tricks and get-rich-quick schemes had rocked jazz-era America and the rest of the world. In Paris, he had sold the Eiffel Tower in an audacious confidence game, not once, but twice. And finally, in 1935, Lustig was captured after masterminding a counterfeit banknote operation so vast that it threatened to shake confidence in the whole American economy. A judge in New York sentenced him to 20 years on Alcatraz. Lusted was unlike any other inmate to arrive on the rock. He dressed like a matinee idol, possessed a hypnotic charm, spoke five languages fluently, and evaded the law like a figure from fiction. In fact, the Milwaukee Journal described him as a storybook character. 
One Secret Service agent wrote that Lustig was as elusive as a puff of cigarette smoke and as charming as a young girl's dream. The New York Times stated he was not the hand-kissing type of bogus count, too keen for that. Instead of theatrical, he was always a reserved, dignified, noble man. The fake title was just the tip of Lustig's deceptions. He used 47 aliases and carried dozens of fake passports. He created a web of lies so thick that even today his true identity remains shouted, shrouded in mystery. On his Alcatraz paperwork, prison officials called him Robert V. Miller, which was just another one of his pseudonyms. The con man had always claimed to hail from a long line of aristocrats who owned European castles. Yet, newly discovered documents revealed more humble beginnings. In prison interviews, he told investigators that he was born in the Austria-Hungarian town of Hostin on January 4, 1890. The village is arranged around a Baroque clock tower in the shadow of the Karkinov's Mountains. During his crime spree, Lustig had boasted that his father, Ludwig, was the burgomaster or mayor of the town. But in recent uncovered prison papers, he described his father and mother as the poorest peasant people who raised him in a grim house made from stone. Lustig claimed he stole to survive but only from the greedy and the dishonest. More textured accounts of Lustig's childhood can be found in various crime magazines of the time, informed by his criminal associates and investigators. In the early 1900s as a teenager, Lustig scampered up the criminal ladder, progressing from panhandler to pickpocket to burglar to street hustler. According to True Detective Mysteries magazine, he perfected every card trick known. By the time he reached adulthood, Lustig could make a deck of cards do everything but talk. First-class passengers aboard transatlantic ships became his first victims. The newly rich were easily picked off. When Lustig, Lustig arrived in the United States at the end of World War I, the Roaring Twenties were in full swing and money was changing hands at a fervored pace. Lustig quickly became known to detectives in 40 American cities as the Scarred, thanks to a livid two-and-a-half-inch gash across his left cheekbone, a souvenir from a love rival in Paris. Yet Lustig was a considered a smoothie who had never held a gun and enjoyed mounting butterflies. Records showed that he was just five foot seven inches tall and weighed only 140 pounds. His most successful scam was the Romanian money box. It was a small box fashioned from cedar wood with complicated rollers and brass dials. Lustig claimed the contraption could copy banknotes the big show he gave to victims was sometimes aided by a sidekick named Dapper Dan Collins, described by the New York Times as a former circus lion tamer 
and depth-defying bicycle rider. Lustig's repertoire also included fake horse race schemes, feigned seizures during business meetings, and bogus real estate investments. These capers made him a public enemy and a millionaire. America in the 1920s was infested with such confidence rackets operated by smooth-talking immigrants like Charles Ponzi. These European con artists were professionals who called their victims marks instead of suckers and who acted not like thugs but gentlemen's of our gentlemen according to the crime magazine True Detective. Lustig was a man who society took by one hand and the underworld by the other, a flesh and blood, Jekyll and Hyde. Yet, he treated all women with respect, and on November 3, 1919, he married a pretty Kansan girl named Roberta Norrit. A memoir by Lustig's late daughter recalls how Lustig raised a secret family on whom he lavished his ill-gotten gains. The rest he spent on gambling and on his lover, Billy May Schweibel, the buxom owner of a million-dollar prostitute racket. Then in 1925, he embarked upon what swindling experts called the Big Store. He arrived in Paris in May of that year, according to the memoir of U.S. Secret Service agent James Johnson. There, Lustig commissioned stationery, carrying the official French government seal. Next, he presented himself at the front desk of the Hotel Creland, a stone palace on the Place de la Concorde. And from there, Pretending to be a French government official, Lustig wrote to the top people in the French scrap metal industry, inviting them to the hotel for a meeting. Well, because of engineering faults, costly repairs, and political problems, I cannot discuss. The tearing down of the Eiffel Tower has become mandatory, he reportedly told them in a quiet hotel room. The tower would be sold to the highest bidder, he announced. His audience was captivated, and their bids flowed in. It was a scam Lustig pulled off more than once, sources said. Amazingly, the con man liked to boast of his criminal achievements, and he even pinned a list of rules for his would-be swindlers. And these rules are still circulated today. So here are Lustig's Ten Commandments of the Con. Number one, be a patient listener. It is this, not fast talking, that gets a con man his coups. Secondly, never look bored. Thirdly, wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. Let the other person reveal religious views and then have the same ones. Hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other fellow shows a strong interest. Six, never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Seven, never pry into a personal a person's personal circumstances, 
They will tell you eventually. Never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Number nine, never be untidy. And lastly, never get drunk. Like many career criminals, it was greed that led to Lustig's demise. On December 11, 1928, businessman Thomas Kearns invited Lustig to his Massachusetts home to discuss an investment. Lustig crept upstairs and stole $16,000 from a drawer. Such a barefaced thug was out of character for the con man, and Kearns screamed to the police. Next, Lustig had the audacity to trick a Texas sheriff with his money box and later gave him counterfeit cash, which attracted the attention of the Secret Service. Victor Lustig was a top man in the modern world of crime, wrote another agent. He was the only one I ever heard of who swindled the law. Yet, it was Secret Service agent Peter A. Rubano who vowed to put Lustig behind bars. Rubano was a heavy-set Italian-American with a double chin, sad eyes, and endless ambition. Born and raised in the Bronx, Rubano had made his name by trapping the t- notorious gangster Ignacio the Wolf Lupo. Rubano delighted in seeing his name in the newspapers and would dedicate many years to catching Lustig. When the Austrian entered the counterfeit banknote business in 1930, Lustig fell under Rubano's crosshairs. Teaming up with gangland forger William Watts, Lustig created banknotes so flawless they even fooled bank tellers. Lustig Watts notes were the supernotes of the era, said Joseph Bowling, chief judge of the American Numismatic Association, a specialist in authenticating notes. Lustig daringly chose to copy $100 bills those scrutinized the most by bank tellers, and became like some other government, issuing money in rivalry with the United States Treasury, a judge later commented. It was feared that a run of fake bills this large could wobble international confidence in the dollar. Catching the count became a cat-and-mouse game for Rubano and the Secret Service, Lustig traveled with a trunk of disguises that can transform easily into a rabbi, a priest, a bellhop. Dressed like a baggage man, he could escape any hotel in a pinch and even take his luggage with him. But the net was closing in. Lustig finally felt a tug on his velvet collar of his Chesterfield coat on a New York street corner on May 10, 1935. A voice ordered, Hands in the air. 
Lustig studied the circle of men surrounding him and noticed Agent Rubano, who led him away in handcuffs. It was a victory for the Secret Service, but not for long. On the Sunday before Labor Day, September 1, 1935, Lustig escaped from the inescapable Federal Detention Center in Manhattan. He fashioned a rope from bedsheets, cut through the bars, and swung from the windows like an urban Tarzan. When a group of onlookers stopped and pointed, the prisoner took a rag from his pocket and pretended to be a window cleaner. Landing on his feet, Lustig gave his audience a polite bow and sprinted away like a deer. Police dashed to his cell. He was gone. Lustig evaded the law until the Saturday night of September 28, 1935, in Pittsburgh, the dashing crook ducked into a waiting car on the city's north side and watching from a hiding position, FBI agent J.K. Firestone gave the signal to Pittsburgh's Secret Service agent Fred Gruber. The two federal officers leapt into the car and gave chase. For nine blocks, their vehicles rode neck and neck. When Lustig's driver refused to stop, the agents rammed their car into his, locking the wheels together. The cars crashed to a halt. The agents pulled their service weapons and drew open the doors. Lustig told his captors, Well, boys, here I am. At Lustig's trial in New York in November of 1935, another journalist overheard a Secret Service agent tell Lustig, Count, you're the smoothest con man that ever lived. As soon as he stepped onto Alcatraz Island, prison guards searched Lustig's body for concealed watch springs and razor blades and hosed him down with freezing seawater. They marched him along the main corridor between the cells known as Broadway in his birthday suit. There was a chorus of howls and whistles and clanging of metal cups against the bars. It is somewhat superficially humiliating, said Lustig. He asserts that he was accused of everything in the category of crime, including the burning of Chicago said a prison guard of Lustig. Whatever his true identity, the cold weather took its toll on Prisoner 300. By December 7, 1946, Lustig had made a staggering 1,192 medical requests and filled 507 prescriptions. The prison guards believed he was faking that his illness was part of an escape plan. They even found torn, torn bedsheets in his cell. At any rate, he was transferred to a secure medical facility in Springfield, Missouri, where doctors soon realized he was not faking. There he died from complications arising from pneumonia. Somehow, Lustig's family kept his death a secret for two years. But Lustig's Houdini-like departure from Earth was not even his greatest deception. In March of 2015, an historian from Lustig's hometown began a tireless search for biographical information about the town's most famous citizen. 
He searched through records rescued from Nazi bonfires, pored over electoral rolls and historical documents. He must have attended school in Hostein, the historian reasoned, yet he is not even mentioned in the list of pupils attending the local primary school. After much searching, the historian concluded there's not a scrap of evidence that Lustig was ever born. We may never know the true identity of Count Victor Lustig, but we do know for certain that the world's most flamboyant con man died at 8.30 p.m. on March 11, 1947, and on his death certificate, a clerk wrote this for his occupation, Apprentice Salesman. Well, that's enough of the charlatans and rascals for this time. After doing the research on this subject, I've discovered that unfortunately there are so many of these wheeler dealers in history that I think I'm just going to designate this history hour as part one of swindlers and con artists. In the weeks to come, maybe I'll do a part two. Who knows, maybe even a part three. And we'll take a look at even more of these scoundrels. Until next week, this is Joseph Bolt for Radio Eyes History Hour. And don't forget, keep your purses locked tight and your wallets close by.